Frank House here. Another podcast uh, from my Substack, The Sounds of a Failing Democracy, uh, writings about law and music. And today I'm here with a book chat with author Brian Carso, the author of Gideon's Revolution, a wonderful new uh, historical novel set in the American Revolution uh, about Benedict Arnold. Brian, welcome. Thanks, Frank. Good to talk with you. Love the book. It's a page turner. It's educational. It's fun. I want to get my my listeners right into it. Uh, give us give us a reading from the book. Well, thanks, Frank. I'll I'll read from uh, very early when in uh, in the uh, first chapter when we're introduced to Gideon Wheatley, um, who is the narrator and the primary character in the novel. Um, as as your listeners know, I'm sure Benedict Arnold was our best battlefield general when he fought for the Continental Army, and then he switched sides. He was commandant of West Point and made a plan to give over West Point to the British, which would have given the British control of the Hudson River. Um, Arnold escapes when his plot is found out, but the British go-between, Major John Andre, is captured. And that's how we, uh, on the American side, learned of Arnold's betrayal. And at the heart of this novel is a true secret spy mission, uh, I had done research on a history book, and I found that there's a little-known secret spy mission to capture Benedict Arnold when he escapes to Manhattan, and that's at the center of this. And Gideon Wheatley is brought in to uh, participate in this spy mission because he knows Arnold both as a hero of the battlefield and now as a traitor. And that's one of the central tensions, is how does Gideon Wheatley, how do we as the American public deal with someone who was once one of our great heroes and then becomes a traitor. Uh, So in this piece, Gideon Wheatley is introducing himself, and he's also talking about John Andre, who he gets to meet and interrogate, and we find out why a little bit later on. But here's a bit about Gideon Wheatley. I was a soldier in the Revolution. This would have pleased my father, who measured his worth in the currency of honor, But my mother made me promise to live three score and ten, and she knew the cost of soldiering. In a world in which young young breath can expire in a cough, she wrapped her arms tightly around me. But as I grew, she would say to herself, just loud enough for me to hear, I cannot raise an eagle if I treat him like a sparrow. She raised me to manhood, insisting on a middle ground. Earn a good name, she told me, but live to see another day and know that a life sacrificed for honor, though glorified in eulogy, casts a shadow of pity. When I took up arms, never did I think to be a spy. To live honorably and do my duty, that was my intention, not the thrust and parry of trickery and deceit. To be a spy is to risk both life and honor on a game of dice. I would not do it. John Andre was different. He made a bet. Briefly, I knew Andre, but only as an inquisitor. If anyone had a sporting chance, surely he did. But on a quiet road beside the Hudson River, in the ungoverned territory that neither army claimed, he was abandoned by the good fortune he had known all his life. When I questioned him, pressing for information about his plot with our treasonous general, I tried to imagine the moment he decided to gamble. I looked at Andre, a major in the British Army who was now our prisoner, as he sat in a chair beside a small round table. Why? I asked. He said nothing, but cast a downward glance and slowly shook his head. The galloping menace of the war 
had simply outpaced him. So that's a little introduction to Gideon wow. Wheatley. What is it about Arnold's character that you learned that made you, if you came to understand why he betrayed uh, his country? That's a question. That's a great question, Frank, that historians, anybody who studies the American Revolution, or particularly Benedict Arnold, we get in these conversations that go for hours. What was it about Arnold's character that drove him to do this? Surely, certainly, uh, the politics were a mess. People from Pennsylvania didn't trust people from Connecticut. Uh, Arnold was a general from Connecticut. Uh, other states didn't want him to be promoted over their own local generals. So politics were a problem. Uh, there were any number of insults to Arnold's character that this, uh, that the political discourse at the time made against him. But that happened to everybody. Uh, you know, even George Washington was uh, disparaged by people during the American Revolution. And all these other people did not become traitors. So what was it about Benedict Arnold that made him change sides? Um, and it's a fascinating question. And I went to his hometown of Norwich, Connecticut, and I uh, walked the, the colonial graveyard where his mother and his siblings are buried. Uh, I looked at records, uh, merchant records, church records, to figure out what had happened in Arnold's youth and teenage years. And here's what I think, Frank, and, I'll, and then I'll read a little passage that demonstrates this. Um, Benedict Arnold was born, born into what we would call today an upper middle class family, one of the wealthiest families in Norwich. His father, also named Benedict, was a well-to-do merchant. And Benedict Arnold, our Benedict, is the oldest male in the family. And he is sent when he's 12 years old to a Mr. Cogswell's school about 15 miles north of Norwich to uh, basically prepare him to go to Yale and to, to prosper as a upper middle class American. Uh, and while young Benedict is there, as happened so often in so many places, disease ran through uh, Norwich, Connecticut uh, on several different times. And Arnold's other siblings, all but one, died uh, in childhood from disease. The things that we immunize against and, and the things that we go to the pediatrician to take care of, uh, these things killed people uh, back then. And um, probably because of this, Benedict Arnold's father becomes a severe alcoholic and the family fortunes uh, disappear over time. I, I recount in the book, and this is, is true, I, I saw the church records uh, that when the, the family was in, in good order before these, this disease and before the alcoholism, the family gave a substantial tithe to the church, the congregational church each year, and would sit in one of the boxes for the family right up front near the altar. Then after a couple of years, as they were, their financial fortunes were failing, uh, the family would pay less to the church and would sit in one of the regular pews in the back half of the church. And then by a couple of years later, the family wasn't paying anything and was standing in the back with the poor. Uh, so that's a, a dramatic example of how Arnold's family's fortunes just spiraled downward. Wow. In light of that, 
Benedict Arnold is called back from Mr. Cogswell's school. Naturally, they can't pay for that anymore. And he spends a good part of his teenage years going out at night and dragging his dad home from bars. His mother would send him, go get your father. Uh, These humiliations made a great mark on Benedict Arnold. So I think whether Arnold is, take Saratoga, the Battle at Saratoga, which military historians say is one of the most important battles in in human history, because it changes the course of the American Revolution. It convinces the French to come and and help us send some navy, some money, some guns. Uh, And Horatio Gates, the, the top general, spends those battles, spends that month in a cabin, writing orders and having them sent out. Benedict Arnold spends that time on his horse, literally waving his sword, leading his troops into battle against the opponent. Uh, What made Arnold do that? I think it was he wanted to restore his honor, restore his family name in light of those humiliations that he suffered as a teenager and young man. And when politics and other things interfered on the American side that Benedict Arnold did not get the accolades and the promotions and so forth that he believed he deserved. He went to look for that honor and reputation somewhere else. And in this case, the, uh, the British side. And uh, Frank, if you'd like, I can read a, a passage. I'd love to hear another passage. All right. Let me have a sip of water here. Arnold is severely wounded, gravely wounded at Saratoga, and he spends four months in a military hospital that had been built for the French and Indian War in Albany, New York, today about an hour's drive south of the Saratoga battlefield. Uh, And his leg, which had been shattered when a horse was shot out from under him and crushed his leg, uh, is in a fracture box. Uh, A box would be built around it, and every couple of weeks, the doctors would come in and pull the bones apart and try to get them to set correctly. Uh, and there was nothing that guaranteed Arnold would survive this at all. Uh, and so this is in the hospital. And Gideon Wheatley is attending to Arnold in the hospital. And Wheatley brings Arnold the news that Johnny Burgoyne, General Burgoyne and the British are surrendering to General Gates, that the battles of Saratoga have been won because Gideon Wheatley believes that this will cheer up Benedict Arnold at this low moment when he's quite ill and feverish. Gideon Wheatley is telling the story here. I did not speak any more about the surrender, but the next day Arnold raised the topic. Do you know what Gates and Burgoyne did after the sword was surrendered? He asked. No, sir. I suspect, as would be proper, that Gates invited Burgoyne and his brigadiers and regimental commanders to join him and his officers in his marquee tent. For what purpose, I asked. To show the honorable intentions of gentlemen, he replied. I presumed he wanted to talk, so I asked him, in what manner? A banquet, he answered, nothing less than a banquet. There would be boards set across barrels, and on them would be the best meal the army could gather— Imagine boiled mutton, a goose, ham, beefsteaks. To feed them before their next long journey, I asked, knowing there was more to it. To celebrate valor and courage, he said, flat on his back, looking upward at the ceiling. There would be glasses set out and liquor, probably rum. Burgoyne would offer a toast, maybe to Gates, maybe to General Washington. 
Gates would return the honor. I imagine he would toast the king's health. All the officers would commingle, the British and the Germans, talking with the Americans, observing all possible niceties, complimenting the demeanor of their respective armies, outdoing each other and displaying the virtues of gentlemen. Gentlemen who go to war, gentlemen who face each other on the battlefield, gentlemen who kill one another, but gentlemen who know that the battlefield is the seedbed of valor, where a man's soul and his character are on display for the world to witness. He turned his head to face me. You know this, Captain, as well as any. The battlefield is the theater of courage. As much as we fight to vanquish the enemy, we fight to establish our honor. Arnold turned his gaze back toward the ceiling. Mind you, the broth suits me fine. I do not need the fancy meats, nor the pompous conversation. His eyes shot around the room, looked at me, then rested back on the ceiling. But they should know who led the fight. They should know who beat them. A gust of wind blew through the window. You did, sir, I said but I was only one voice. I remember that passage. I actually think I have that passage marked in my, in my copy. Um, it, you weave in a, you weave a, a, a fine tale. How, how is it? I, I felt very much like I learned a lot of history that I didn't know by reading your book. How does fiction enliven history? History well done, Frank, I think, is stories, you know, stories that affirm our virtues, affirm the way we live our lives, and, and stories that uh, point out demerits, point out people who made mistakes, and uh, they are instructive for that way. And, and, you know, so much of life is understood through storytelling. And in this case, I, I appreciate your compliment about learning history. Uh, I, I have asked authors of historical fiction whenever I meet them, and I've tried to meet them quite a bit in the last number of years, how important are the facts to telling your story? And uh, there's a, a, a big range of opinions on that. On one side of the spectrum, authors will say, well, I, I want to tell an entertaining story first, and if the historical facts help me to do that, I will fit them in. And and my day job is as a college history professor. so. I was on the other end of the spectrum where I said, I want to get all the facts right uh, and describe those facts and tell that story, but then fill in the gaps of our knowledge with, with a kind of educated imagination. And again, a lot of this was a, a spy story, so there were big gaps. There were certainly things we knew, but um, I wanted to fill in those gaps and, and tell a story that might... Um, tell us something about who we are even today, who we've been in the past, but who we are today. Well, Brian, I think you did that. Uh, I think we should end there. Um, I just want to thank you for, for talking with me today and let everybody know that uh, Gideon's Revolution is available wherever books are sold, your independent bookstore, or Amazon. Uh, Gideon's Revolution by Brian Carso. Uh, a, a thrilling historical tale about a critical time in this nation's history. Brian, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Frank. Always a pleasure.